Well, I want to go ahead and ask you guys to take your Bibles and to turn over to 3rd John, the last of John's three letters. That's what we're going to be spending time in uh, this morning together. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we'd love to give you one. We've provided some at the center of each aisle that are, are here because we want you to have a copy of God's Word if you don't have one yet. Uh, it, everything we do as Christians flows out of what we believe God has said to us. We'd love the chance to show you what we believe that he said in his word and explain it to you and talk to you about what you, what you find there. So please take that and then we'd love to follow up afterwards and, and talk to you about what you're going to hear this morning and what you may read there on your own. Uh, you'll find the third letter of John almost at the very end of the book. So go to the very end and start flipping backwards. And pretty soon after that, you'll come to it. While you're doing that, I want to give you a brief little commercial for what's going to start next week. So... Next Sunday, just as uh, most of you guys are prepared to go out of town for the rest of the summer, uh, those of us who are staying behind are going to be beginning a series that's going to take us through the summer. It's about a ten, 10 weeks, if my memory serves, uh, where we're going to be walking together through a, a kind of material in the Bible that's known as lament. So part of that series will be a, a, a book known as Lamentations. It's the best example in the Bible of this of this type of material, but there's more than just in the book of Lamentations. So we're going to spend some time talking about what this genre, what this type of material is, what role it plays in the life of a, of a follower of Jesus, and, um, and, then, and some tools on how to use the kind of stuff that Lament teaches us in our own life, in our own uh, personal prayer towards God in times that are hard for us, and also in our care for one another as others that around you are suffering. Lament gives you the kind of language you need to connect with them in their experience, even if you can't fully understand it, and to pray meaningful, intentional, careful prayers with them while they press through what God has brought into their life. So we're going to start that series next week with a chance to overview the whole, talk about what it is, get some definitions, get your, get your appetites whetted, if you will, and then that, we'll spend the rest of the summer together in that, uh, in that genre in the scriptures. I'm really excited about it. Um, it's, it it's heavy. But, um, but one of the beautiful things about the Bible is that they don't, it doesn't pretend like things are easier than what they are. It never pretends like any of us should ever expect to live life with nothing but cheeriness and joy and happiness all the time. But it offers us something far more than that. Perspective and hope and, and a way to relate to God with whatever it is that we're experiencing at the time. So this will be a good chance. Hopefully what we can pray about this series is that God will use it to help our congregation together as a culture be better, more intelligent, more equipped to walk through difficult times together. That's what we're hoping for and praying towards and look forward to starting that next Sunday. But for today, we have one more week in the letters of John. When we plotted out this series, uh, which we began at the very beginning of the year, uh, almost all of it was in John's first letter, which is pretty long, five chapters long and, and more than took up our time for, the, for the, uh, the first few months of this year. But we wanted to, to end the series with second and third John because we realized that so few of us have ever really engaged them or been taught what they mean. So I did this last week. I'm going to do it again this morning. Uh, show of hands. How many of you guys, just, just, to, just to, uh, to sort of ease my curiosity, how many of you guys have ever been taught or preached to from 3rd John? Raise your hand if you've ever been taught it. All right, I'm counting, I think, eight hands. Nobody helped me to that. That was just a quick scan of the room. I want to say eight hands. 
Uh, well, and that, there's a lot more people than that in here. Uh, that, that's, that was my guess. I mean, I, I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon on it. I certainly never preached a sermon on Third John. So we wanted to make sure we, we got to these two letters, partly because in our church, for this part of our weekly gatherings every week, we try to walk section by section through the Bible, taking whatever comes next, and doing our best to understand it and apply it to our own lives. We like to allow the Bible to set the agenda for what we, what we consider together each week because we know that if we only brought to our gatherings things we were already interested in, things that we already knew a lot or felt like we had something to say about, it's just a pretty narrow range of stuff that we'd be talking about. But the Bible is rich and diverse and full of stuff that, that needs to be understood. And, and so we like to come to texts like this one sometimes that, that a lot of us don't have a lot of exposure to. The other thing that... That, uh, that approach to the scriptures uh, produces, I think, in our church life is that sometimes you just end up talking about things that you probably wouldn't choose to talk about if you didn't come to them as the next thing in line. I think what we're going to read, what we're going to read about and talk about in Third John falls in that category for me because it puts me in a bit of an awkward position. Uh, the, the straightforward, clear theme of this letter is what sort of leaders you should support with your money and what sorts of leaders you should run away from. So I'm going to tell you what sort of leaders you should support with your money, and I'm going to tell you what to be watching for if you think you might need to run. Uh, and as a church leader who is, who is paid by our congregation to do some of the work of leadership among the elders, uh, you know, obviously I've got a vested interest in what you're, <laughs> what you're going to hear this morning. Not the kind of thing that you ever want to come to and, and, and bring on your own initiative to your congregation. But when it's just the next thing in line, and this is what you came to this week uh, when you started your prep, uh, God has set the table for us this morning. It's a wonderful way of submitting our agenda and our interests to what the Bible has told us. So that's what brings us to 3 John this morning. And, and all joking aside, I'm excited and encouraged for the chance to talk to you guys about church leadership because it's so important, because it's not something that comes up often in our series together. Uh, we wanna claim every opportunity we have, every opportunity our series gives us, every time the Bible goes there and something we're already considering to talk about a theme that's actually very consistent and clear through the scriptures, the importance of leaders that you can trust learning how to recognize them, how to follow and support them, and how to avoid those who, who you can't trust. We're going to consider those themes together this morning by walking through Third John. Now, I want to give you a couple of basics about this letter before I read it to you, and then before we narrow in on the body of the letter, the several central verses of it. A couple of basics about this letter. This one's actually uh, a little bit shorter even than Second John. A very typical length for an ancient letter follows the same pattern that an ancient letter would typically follow. A greeting, a body, that's the main stuff that it wants to communicate to you, and then a conclusion that just offers more greetings, says who to say hey to, um, and, and, then, and then ends. Uh, this one, this letter compared to 1 John, but even compared to 2 John, is way more personal. Um, he drops several specific names of individuals that he either wanted to greet or introduce or talk about in some harsh ways, some clear and needful but, but sharp ways. Um, the, uh, the, the, the letter is clearly a window into one particular church and what their life was like together. So that's precious to us. It's not one of those letters that's, that's circulated. You can tell it wasn't circulated around a whole bunch of other churches like maybe First John was. Those are helpful and valuable in one way. But sometimes these really narrow personal letters are great just for the window they give us into what was going on, what kind of things people were talking about and interested in in this time. So that's what we're going to get from, from Third John this morning. 
Um, the first chunk of the letter you'll see is a celebration of what he'd heard about this friend of his that he's writing to, a friend named Gaius. Gaius had set a great model for how to support teachers who deserve that support. And he's going to celebrate that and explain why they're worthy of his support. And then the second chunk of the letter is uh, focused on a troublemaker on a power trip. And John's intent to put this guy in his place when he gets the chance. Um, so that's what, we're going to, that's what we're going to consider. I want to begin by, by just reading the letter in total. And then we're going to focus in on the central verses of it. I want to ask you now to stand with me in honor of God's word as I read from 3 John. This is the word of the Lord. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. These verses give us our greeting. Beloved, he writes, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you're walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And here's the body of the letter. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony. And you know that our testimony is true. And this is the conclusion. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I mentioned earlier that the the, the body of this letter, those central verses are really straightforward. And I don't want to make it more complicated than John has. So we're going to spend our time together this morning focusing on what he tells us about leaders we should support. That's on one hand. That's number one. And what he tells us about leaders we should avoid, that's number two. So what sort of leaders should we support and why? That's the message that comes to us through verses 5 to 8. So it's right after this typical greeting uh, where John is celebrating and affirming what he's heard about his friend Gaius and his faithfulness to the truth. In verse 5, John gets straight to the purpose for this letter. He wants to reinforce what he's heard about Gaius, what Gaius is already doing. So what he's heard is that Gaius is using his resources, presumably his home and his food, maybe his money, uh, to, to support some traveling preachers, people who were strangers to him, but who were going around with the gospel, taking it to places that didn't have it yet. 
John writes to celebrate what he's already done and to tell him to keep it up. To tell him, tell him in verse, as he does in verse 6, this is worth your time. You'll do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. In other words, honor them. Give to them as you would to God. That's a strong statement. To send these guys on in a manner worthy of God is to say, let your treatment of them, your support of them, material support of them, be a reflection of your support of God, of how committed you are to Him, of how valuable He is to you. That will show up in your support of them. That's what he's telling them. It implies a kind of generosity. Not treating them like beggars that you give just enough to scrape by, but, but giving to them an exp- as an expression of your care for and your giving to God. And, and if that, that image for support of faithful teachers fits with what Paul and others say in the New Testament. This John's not an outlier here. So why is it so important to support teachers like this? John gives us three simple reasons. They're, they're terse, just a couple little references here, but packed with significance. I want to make sure you can see them this morning. Leaders, we should support three simple reasons to do that. Here's the first one. The first reason to support these teachers that John gives us, that I think we can apply in our own context, is that these teachers are doing work for Jesus, not for themselves. Did you notice how he describes them? When he says in verse 7, for, here's why you should send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For, here comes his explanation, for they've gone out for the sake of the name. These are people who care more about Jesus' name than their own. They're people who want to see his name ring out all around the world. They want to see him known among people who don't know him yet. They want people who don't know even how badly they need him to be satisfied in him so that they can celebrate and glorify what he offers that no one else can. That's what it means to be out there for the sake of the name. You want to see Jesus made glorious by proving that he can give what no one else can. That's what they're about. So support them in a manner worthy of God because the consuming purpose of their life, what they're all about is the same thing that God is all about. Glorifying Jesus. Building towards the day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's God's mission right now in life, in this world. And that's their mission too. So support them like they're worthy of God in a way that's worthy of God. Friends, it's, it's, it's like Gaius and these teachers get the point that John was making all through 1 John. I mean, through that whole letter, all five chapters, the thing he keeps coming back to on a loop is, the, is clarity about who Jesus is. It's what was called into question by the way that, that some teachers were spreading false ideas about him. It, it, it was called into question by the way some people were behaving. And time and time again, John is saying both in what you affirm, what you believe, what you listen to, and how you love one another, get Jesus right. Get his name clear. Make sure people understand who he is and know that he is the only one in whom hope can be found. And that's what we want you to experience here in our church. We have nothing to offer you this morning besides Jesus. Nothing. What you want is teachers who get that they are not the solution to anybody's problem. Who know that their ingenuity, their creativity, their ability to engage hearers is nothing compared to what those hearers, the the needs that those hearers bring in with them, the scale of uh, of their need before God. What we believe when the Bible teaches us from beginning to end is that our deepest need is reconciliation with a God from whom we have been alienated by our sin. What that means, to put it in different terms, is that we were made for a relationship. We were made to know the God who made us. As hard as that is to even imagine and get your mind around, it's what the Bible says. We were made to know him to love him, to trust him, to depend on him. And yet instead of doing that, 
all of us who have ever lived have chosen to go our own way, to try to establish our own selves, our own names, our own reputations, to try to earn for ourselves or find in other sources the kind of support and care that he promised to give us. We've treated other things as if they're more dependable, more lasting, more worthwhile than him and his friendship. And because of our rejection of him, our relationship with him has been broken. We've told lies about him by our rejection of him. Those lies, have to, the record has to be set straight. And the only way for that to happen is for us, we who have rejected the source of life, to lose our lives. Death is the wages of sin, the Bible tells us. That's the scale of your problem. And no amount of creativity in how I create a sermon or anyone else that you're listening to creates a sermon, no amount of, 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 of anecdotal interest we might amass through all of our references, no amount of erudite learning that we might bring to each message, none of that is going to do anything about the fact that you are condemned by the God who made you for your rejection of him, that your death is just a foreshadowing of what waits for you, friends. So, so, so I'm not the solution to that problem. Seth is not the solution to that problem this morning. No other elder here is the solution to that problem. And, and no one you're ever going to hear is the solution to that problem. There is one solution and only one. It's Christ crucified and risen again who offers to forgive you because he deserves that right. So what you're looking for are leaders who know that their whole purpose in life is the name of Jesus having it known and trusted and validated in your life by his worthiness of your trust. So why should you support them? Well, John's making it clear. They go out for the sake of the name. Jesus is who they're about. Now, that's a lot easier said than done, isn't it? Pretty much anybody can say that they're about the name. How do you really know when someone's for the sake of the name, not for their own agenda? His second reason helps us clarify that, I think. So he modifies what he said in verse 7. For they've gone out for the sake of the name with another little phrase, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Here's how you know they've gone out for the sake of the name. They aren't taking money from the people they've gone out to reach. Now let me explain what this means. So in this time, in the ancient Roman world, it was common for teachers to, to travel around as itinerants making their living off of their ability to hold a crowd's attention. So they would go from place to place, and some of them would be philosophers known for their creative ideas. Some of them would just be entertaining and engaging to listen to. Think about it as, as kind of a traveling uh, inspirational speaker today, or even like a traveling musician who's, who makes a, a living going from town to town, filling up arenas because they're interesting to, to watch and listen to. So in the ancient world, there were, there were traveling teachers who made their living this way. You can get a picture of this a little bit out of one of Paul's letters. When he writes to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, he begins his letter by comparing what he brought to what other people have brought them. How coming into Corinth, this, which was a major center for this kind of teaching, a lot of demand for it, a rich market for it. He came deciding he wasn't going to know anything but Jesus and Jesus crucified. He wasn't going to try to impress them with his rhetorical power. They had plenty of that. He wanted them to know that what he brought was different. Not just some other brand they might attach themselves to, like these other teachers who would come trying to build a following, but Jesus, and Jesus only, and Jesus crucified. So, so that's what these teachers were doing. They were part of something that was expected at this time. People traveling around teaching. 
But those teachers who were traveling around, not, not the Christian teachers, but just philosophers or orators at the time, I mean, their, job, their goal was to just make as much as they possibly could off the interests and tastes of the people they were speaking to. More power to them. That's how they were making their living. That, not what this is. And you know that's not what this is because, because these teachers decided just to make it clear to you that we're not after your pocketbooks. We're not going to take anything from you. Paul, to go back to that letter in Corinth, he said the same thing to the Corinthians. He says, you know, I could have taken money. I had a right to have money from you. What I was offering you was valuable enough for that. But I chose not to because I didn't want to put a stumbling block in the way of the gospel, he said. I didn't want you thinking that I'm offering what everybody else is. I want you to know that Jesus is it's about what Jesus offers you, not about what you might offer me. So these teachers are doing the same thing. So why should you support them? Well, because they're not asking you to. Because they would do what they're doing for free. Because it's that important to them. Now, as far as the Gentiles are concerned, they're doing it for nothing. Gentiles is here like a catchphrase for people who don't yet know about Jesus. So they're traveling around trying to get the gospel to cities that don't have it yet. But what they're doing costs money. It takes their time. It takes them away from work that they could otherwise do to, to make money for their family. So John's writing to this church, this, this man as a representative of his church, saying, you already have the gospel. You need to be the home base so that those they're going to don't have to pay for them to be able to give them the gospel. So he's, turning, he's, he's taking the fact that they won't take money from the people they're going to as a justification for these people they've already, they've already come to, that have already believed in Jesus, supporting it, facilitating it. It reminds me a lot of, of what he said in 2 John, where he, there he was warning them against providing a platform for false teachers. Don't help their message get out. Here he's telling them, do everything you can to help this message get out. You absolutely ought to be involved in hospitality towards these teachers, but make sure you're... Your hospitality is, is spent on the right ones. So, so here's what he's saying. Let me just sum this up. I, there's an irony here, I think. The, the irony is, he's basically saying to Gaius, it's right for you to be as generous as you can in supporting these teachers. Do it in a manner worthy of God. And the reason you should support them so generously is that they aren't asking for any money from you. If they were asking, if they were demanding, that could be a pretty good reason not to give it to them. The fact that they're not demanding it is a good reason to lavish it on them. Honor them generously. Don't impose a sacrifice on them as if it's a necessary part of their ministry. So it's up to them to make sure they're not in it for the money. And it's up to Gaius to make sure, to make it clear that, that they have what they need. So I intend to, in, in our context here, this is absolutely not a calling to make sure every pastor has a private jet. And, and if you've got gospel workers, pastors or ministry workers, nonprofits, missionaries who are negotiating salary to try to make sure it gets up to the level they think they deserve, that's the problem, friends. And that, that, that's, a, I think, a modern day version of, of those who would go and take money from the Gentiles as, as, as if this is their due, this is what they're earned, as if it's what they had coming to them. You don't want that. But you don't necessarily want to see it. I'm going to say, not, not that you don't necessarily. You absolutely do not want to see it as your job to make sure that's not what they're into it for. He's saying, when it, as, it, as it falls to you, Gaius, honor them in a way that's worthy of God. When you have somebody who's not looking to get rich off of Jesus, 
but wants to make Jesus' name known, then you have somebody who's worth supporting in that manner. It's up to him not to demand it. It's up to you to give what he's not asking for generously in a way that reflects God's generosity. I think that's what John's saying. I think that's the kind of ironic point he's making with these first two reasons for supporting these workers. The third one fills out the picture nicely. The third one, the third reason that you should do this, the third reason you should be interested in doing it in a manner that's worthy of God is that this is how you become a fellow worker for the truth, he says, verse eight. Therefore, we ought to support people like this, people who go out for the sake of the name, people who don't take any money from the Gentiles. We ought to support people like this that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Now, here's why that's so important. Every person who knows Jesus, this is a really clear biblical idea, okay? Let me make it as clear as I can. Every person who knows Jesus has access to the truth about who he is, is responsible for getting Jesus to people who don't know Jesus. That isn't the responsibility of one super class of Christians. That's everybody's responsibility. That's the Great Commission, Matthew 28. That's Acts chapter 1, verse 8. All of us are responsible for making sure there is a platform for Jesus being known everywhere. Now, not everyone has the same role to play in getting the gospel out. And to borrow from Paul again, that same letter in 1 Corinthians, he talks about the church as a body that has some hands, has some feet, has eyes and ears and noses. Not all those Parts of the body have the same function, but they're all integral to the body doing what it's called to do. So as Christians who have access to Jesus, we believe it's all of our responsibility to get him out to our city, first of all, but then also to the parts of the world where where no one has any access to him. That's on all of us. But that doesn't mean all of us will do it in the same way. We couldn't. And not all of us are gifted to do it in the same way. So what he's saying is, all right, guys, you might not have teaching ability, Or you might not have the freedom to just pick up and go around to these different cities or move your life to somewhere where there's no access to Jesus. That's okay. You can still be a fellow worker in the truth like you're responsible to be. Your way of doing that is by enabling, empowering, equipping, paying for, essentially, these guys who are gonna go and do it. It's just as much your work as it is theirs. So you get to share in it. That's a good thing. You should celebrate that. So it should be important to you. God gifts different people differently. And those gifts come with different roles and different opportunities. But if you're a Christian, you are a fellow worker for the truth. You just are. And you're responsible to leverage whatever God has given you to get that news out. Again, go back to 2 John. There he's warning them. Don't, don't open your home. Do not offer your welcome. Do not enable the ministry platform of these people who are telling lies about Jesus. If you did that, you'd be sharing in their work, he says. You'd be guilty of their wicked works. That's what he said at the end of Second John, which we looked at last week. Same thing applies here. By providing a platform for the gospel to go out, it's your work too. It's not just theirs. So friends, by your contributions to the life of our church, you are providing a platform for truth about Jesus to be told to anyone who's here right now. By giving to our local ministry partners, you're making sure that, that Jesus is a voice, is a presence. His word goes out among people with real needs for that news all around our city. And, and, and your contributions to our international partners that Seth prayed for earlier in our service are how the gospel is getting to places like Central Asia and, the, and Southeast Asia and the Middle East. That's your work. You're a fellow worker in that, and it's beautiful. 
So that's the, point for, well, the point for you is this. I think from, from this picture of the kind of leaders we should support, when you've got somebody you know is about getting Jesus' name out there, and you can tell that they're not just trying to get rich off of Jesus, well, then you've got a responsibility where God has placed you with the opportunity he's given you to use what you have to make sure Jesus gets clear for the people around you. And you ought to pursue leveraging what you have, whether that's your money or your home or or your food or whatever, not as a burden or a duty that you take up to whatever minimum you think is required, but to think about it as an opportunity you plunge into with joy because the work you're supporting is work you believe in. It's valuable to you. It matters. It's honorable and good work to do. I've never experienced a whiff of this in our church. Let me just say this at the front, but uh, I have known a lot of other pastors and I've come from other pastoral contexts where I grew up. There's this old truism or old old joke that goes around a lot. Uh, I don't know where it came from, but it's it's a a group of deacons praying and their prayer is, Lord, uh, you keep them humble, we'll keep them poor. Basically tag team in that pastor's sanctification. Never a whiff of that here. But, but that, is a, that is a factor in some places. As, uh, and, and I think what John is saying is that if you, if, if you see your contributions to ministry partners who are preaching the gospel, whether around the world, like our missionary partners are right here in Nashville, as something that you just kind of have to, you, you got to throw in a little bit because you'd feel guilty otherwise, but that you really don't, don't feel great about. Then, then that actually can be a, a sign of, 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 of something negative in your view of what that work is and how important it is and how valuable it is. If you think of your support for gospel work as a kind of charity giving where you're just giving to the needy, it's, it, it, it may be showing something in your heart, friend, that, that, that you don't understand the value of the gospel going out to places that don't have it. So don't think of gospel workers you support as beggars and your contributions as charity, but think of it as shared work, as them doing something honorable that you love and believe in, something that you want to be part of. And so, so what that does to your contributions, to whatever, whether that's financial or hospitality-based, what that does to your contributions is turn them into an investment that you're making in something that's precious to you. Not a handout, but a surefire, can't-fail Investment. When you see it this way, your material support of gospel ministry this way, then, then this is how you do the work together. This, that, that's what it is for you to become a fellow worker in the truth. I think that's what John's trying to say as in his celebration of Gaius. I think that's how we can think of our own responsibilities to use what God has given us to make sure the gospel's going out around the world. I, I want to I shift gears here, though, because this letter's about more than just this positive vision of the kind of leader you should want to support and how you should want to support him. Uh, he finishes the letter actually on a negative note, which is, which is good to see. The Bible has a very balanced, nuanced, true perspective on leadership. It is very pro-leader. It's, it's very, it stands against a lot of the suspicions of leadership that come natural to us in 21st century America, uh, where authority is, is always sus- uh, suspected and often avoided. The Bible doesn't share that perspective. It celebrates good, godly, gospel-centered leadership, but it is not naive about that. 
The Bible treats leadership as something that is a good but a very dangerous gift that God has given us, something that can easily be corrupted, something that, if corrupted, can be dangerous for the life of the whole church. So the rest of this letter is about pointing out, using this one guy who was working evil in this local church, using him as an example, pointing out the kind of leader that you should be on the lookout for and avoiding if you can. I want to make sure you can understand what he's pointing to here in verses 9 to, uh, to 11 uh, before we finish this morning. Here's where he comes, uh, introduces us to this guy named Diotrephes, who we know nothing about other than what we see in these verses, which is unfortunate for Diotrephes, but I trust he deserved it. Uh, the first half of the letter, I've mentioned already a positive view of leadership, the people you should trust and listen to. The second half of the letter, uh, not so much. I think the, the way that John makes his case against Diotrephes here in verses 9 and 10 is kind of a mirror image of what he said about these workers that should be supported by Gaius, were worthy of his investment, financial and, and material. And it helps to, to, to fill out our picture of what's a true and worthy leadership and what's a counterfeit version of that leadership. So if the primary mark of somebody that's worth supporting, the first thing that John went to, when he described these leaders and said, yeah, keep, keep, keep enabling them, was that they go out for the sake of the name. That was the first thing that he thought of. If that was the primary mark of leaders you should support, then the first thing he starts with, with this guy that you should oppose and avoid, is just the opposite, like a mirror opposite. He likes to put himself first. Diotrephes is not about the name. Diotrephes is about his, his own name. That's the name that matters to him. Verse 9. Now, it's a subjective thing to say that somebody's more interested in their own name than in the name of Jesus. That's a judgment you've got to be real, real careful with. You don't want to pull that one on the hair trigger. Because all of us are limited in what we see. And everybody is sinful and selfish and has the ability to abuse the platform leadership God has given them. There's no one who's above it. So we've got to be real careful not, not, not to assume, not to quickly go there. And we need help recognizing like, who is putting themselves first. How would I know if this leader was putting himself first and not about the name? And what John says to fill out his picture here points us in the right direction. So he says, Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, and then he gives us several things about what Diotrephes is doing that you should pay attention to. I want to pull those out for you in the form of several questions that you can ask of leaders that you might follow here in our own church or in other churches that you may already belong to if you're visiting here or churches that God may take you to from here when you, when you move from Nashville. What should you be looking for? How would you know if a leader wasn't about the name of Jesus but likes to put himself first? Let me, let me just give you a few questions pulling out some of these details John gives us. Here's the first question. Ask this. Does this leader... Avoid authorities that could tell him he's wrong. Does he avoid authorities over him that could tell him he's wrong? That's the first thing that John mentions after saying that he likes to put himself first. Verse 9, he says, This guy, Diotrephes, does not acknowledge our authority. The hour there, most likely a reference to John, who was an apostle, almost certainly. We don't know for sure, but we think this was the apostle John who lived with Jesus who heard his teachings, saw all his life, watched him die, and saw him alive again. He had a unique authority in the life of early, the early church. 
in getting Christianity established, those who were with Jesus and heard him and saw him were seen as having a unique authority no one else could have because of their relationship with him. John is trying to exercise that authority here in this church. He's, write, he's written something to the church to try to correct course. And Diotrephes has sort of intercepted what he's written and stood against it. He does not acknowledge our authority. So, you want to avoid leaders who put themselves in a vacuum like Diotrephes has, where their own voice is the only one they hear. And of course, friends, just to put this more into our context, the most important authority you want to see your leaders submitting to is the one that Diotrephes has rejected, the authority of apostles, the authority of those who lived with Jesus, who saw him, who listened to him, who watched him die and rise again, and who were given a special charge by Jesus to make sure the truth about Jesus gets handed down from generation to generation. Friends, that's what we believe we have in the New Testament. What we have in the New Testament is the, is the written testimony of the apostles and the people they cultivated passing on to us for all time what Jesus said and did and what it means to follow him. So what you want to look for in a leader is, does this person see himself as living and teaching under the authority of the Bible? Is he doing everything he can to submit his own personality, his own instincts, his own creativity to hide it behind almost what the Bible says so that the Bible is the platform he's offering you for your life and and, and for your calling. You want to look for that. Do do your leaders see their job to be elevating God's word in your lives? Beyond that, are are your leaders willing to have their minds changed? Do Do they ever come to the scriptures and find something they didn't expect? Do they, ever, do they have the flexibility to, to know they don't have it all figured out and are willing to change course sometimes? Do, are they willing to accept things that they find in the Scriptures that they'd rather not accept? Things that maybe they're wired up not to like very much, but they submit it to it willingly and even joyfully because they know they are not the best arbiter for what's true. They need something higher than them. They need something they can submit to. Do you see that in them? That's what you're looking for. Beyond the authority of the Bible and the apostles, what you're looking for is leaders who are under the authority of other leaders. You don't want somebody who's in a vacuum. Again, where their own, where their own voice is the only voice that they hear. I think it's one of the reasons that the Bible and the New Testament, when they talk about local churches, and they talk about how those local churches should be led, every time the leader of a local church, that office known as elder, every time that it's mentioned, it's mentioned in the plural. So we take from that that Paul and the other guys who are establishing churches, they're making sure every church has more than one because no one person is trustworthy on their own. We're just too limited for that. We don't see everything we need to. So, so do the leaders you're following enjoy and embrace the fact that they need to submit to the other leaders that are around them? That's, what, that's another thing that you're looking for. And that's how we're putting this into practice in our church. One of the things you can pray for is that God will continue to raise up godly, faithful elders who are nobody's yes-men, who are independently and individually for the good of the whole, engaging everything in front of them under the authority of the word, willing to, to stand their ground when they need to and to push on each other in a healthy and, and, and unified way to make sure that, that we're all hearing from God and responding to him well. You can pray that for our church as we try to put this into practice. That's the first question. Does this leader, a good sign that they're trying to put themselves first is if they've separated themselves from any other authority that they have to submit to. Is this leader under the authority of others over him? Here's another question you can ask. Does this leader try to tear down those who disagree with him? Because he uses words to tear down people who are against him. That's what Diotrephes was doing. 
Verse 10, John says, If I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked things, nonsense against us. In the Proverbs and other places in the Scriptures present the tongue as a window into the heart. It has incredible power. Whether you take it seriously or not shows where you're coming from. What you do with it shows where you're coming from. Diotrephes was using his tongue as a weapon to try to destroy those who stood against him. He's using gossip, presumably, lies, exaggerations to tear down John and his cohort. Now, now obviously, opposing other teachers who are teaching things that aren't true is not wrong to do. John just did that. All of 1 John is aimed at these other teachers who were telling them things that weren't true about Jesus. And because we're not always going to see things the same way, opposing views is going to be a part of the church's life forever until Jesus comes back. But there's a different thing between trying to get the message clear, between disagreeing with each other about what the Bible means, and character assassination. And character assassination is that kind of a lazy alternative to actually doing the hard work of trying to understand what's true. Instead of actually reasoning about what's being taught and coming back at it with other things, like John did in, in 1 John, a back and forth between him and these teachers. Instead of taking up that work, you just attack the character of the, of the one who's teaching. It's a shortcut. You don't want to follow somebody who's, who plays that card a lot, who talks negatively about other people, who tears down their character to build his own up in your eyes. Watch out for that. And here's one last question. One last thing that John highlights here. Here's how I'm going to put the question. Does this leader, the leaders that you're considering, does the leader try to control outcomes by force? Does he try to control outcomes? Does he try to accomplish his goals for you and your church by force, by coercion? Diotrephes did. Not content with just talking nonsense against us, he says in verse 10. He, Diotrephes, refuses to welcome the brothers. These are these traveling preachers that Gaius had welcomed. To other voices who would say things about Jesus in this church. He's so threatened by them that he, doesn't, he, he turns them away. He keeps them from coming into the church. And not only does he try to keep them out of the church, he's condemning people who give them shelter like Gaius did. And not only is he condemning them, he's kicking them out of the church. It's like a nuclear option here. He's making sure that there are no other voices speaking into the life of this church and what they understand about Jesus than his own. He's trying to control outcomes by force. That's not what biblical leadership looks like. I mean, 1 Peter 5 is one of the, one of the places in the New Testament that elders are talked about. A job description is given. And one of the key marks there is that they don't lead by coercion, but by persuasion. An example. Elders lead by persuasion and by example. They don't have the authority of the state to throw you in prison. And, and if they know the gospel, if they really care about the name of Jesus, they know that every outcome that really matters to them in your life is going to have to be accomplished by the Holy Spirit. And whether or not they pull some sort of power move and kick you out is not going to accomplish anything that really matters to them in your life. That's just not how they work. They do not have the power to do what they want to do for you. They know that. And so they hide behind the word in a good way. They, they elevate it. They lean into it and they persuade, they plead, they, they, imitate, they give you something you can imitate. This is the opposite of the model that Diotrephes is, is presenting here. 
I think it's where John, what John has in mind in verse 11. He's sort of summing up his letter. Just, it, it, here's what you should know, Gaius. Don't imitate evil, but imitate good. Be like these guys I want you to support. Don't be like this guy who's trying to pull, throw his power around in your church. Leaders you can follow because you want to follow God. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And in some sense, taken out of context, that could be very dangerous from anyone who thinks that there is an exact replica of Jesus and his beauty in, in his or her own life. You want to stay away from that person. But, but if what they mean is that I am doing what I can as God gives me ability and insight to repent and believe every day as God, by his spirit, works me into the image of Jesus, if that person's life is submitted to that agenda, you want to follow them. Do it like they do it. And you want to surround yourself with those kinds of leaders because those are the leaders God intends to use to cultivate you and to bring you along as you, as you grow into the image of Jesus. Friends, the stakes here are so high, partly because the New Testament celebrates leadership so much. It, it makes it so clear. One of the reasons a local church is necessary, and we don't just have sort of loose configurations of Christians hanging out together, is that you need elders that you can trust and who know they're responsible for you. But the stakes are high because those elders are going to be sinful men who aren't always going to see what they need to and who are going to have selfishness in their heart that they may not even recognize. And that's why it's so important to come to texts like this together, hearing the same things, looking at the same models so that we can aim together at the same target because the health of our leadership in our local church and among those gospel workers we support and send out is on all of us. Ultimately, we're all responsible for for who we support. So what are you looking for? You're looking for leaders who know Jesus is everything, for whom Jesus is, is, is far more important than what they do or don't enjoy besides him in this life, including money. And who want to give you a chance through your resources to join them in the work that's in front of all of us. Friends, one of the best things you can do for our culture here at our church is pray. Pray that God will protect the leaders we already have and raise up new ones. And that all of us would do whatever we can to make Jesus known around us. Let's pray that right now together. Father, we, uh, we know, I certainly know as one of the leaders in our church, and all of us in this room know that it's true that, that, that none of us are above what Diotrephes was guilty of. Um, it is in us deep. And so we turn to you for protection. We ask you to make it clear to us where we might be tempted We ask you for faithful friends all around us who can call it out when they see it. And we ask you for a church that sees their investment in leadership, both for here, for the sake of our city and around the world, as a calling and a responsibility they take up with joy. I pray, Father, that you would help us to be a massive sending agency for the gospel here in our city and around the world, together as fellow workers for the truth. And that you protect us from what might threaten that witness. Our own agendas, our own egos, our own limited, blinded sense of what's best. We give ourselves to you. We dedicate whatever we have to be used by you for your purposes here and around the world. And now we ask you to just help us be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.